welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, everyone. Or afternoon, wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> wherever you are, when we're recording, when you're listening. That's, uh, you know, yeah, I, you know, Caroline, you, you started out in radio, what, in the, 19, in the 70s? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, something like that. And, of course, then you could only listen one time. And if you missed it, too yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, right. And now we can, you know, we have podcasts, we have websites, we have, and, and this show actually, you know, is on two live radio stations too, but it's a recording, not a, not a, a live event there. Well, tell us about our guest today, Mom. Well, we have a very interesting uh, book to tell you about and guest. The, the book is Still No Word From You. The author is Peter Horner. And he's an, he's an author of two novels and three short story collections. His previous collection of essays, Am I Alone Here?, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. A three-time recipient of the Pushcart Prize, he has been published in the Best American Short Stories, The New York Times, New Yorker, Atlantic, Paris Review. I mean, I could go on for a long time. And his – excuse me. His work has been translated into eight languages. I think that's 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 pretty impressive. <laughs> okay, and right now he is a um, director of creative writing at Dartmouth College and lives with his family in Norwich, Norwich, Vermont. So, welcome to the program, Peter. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And today you're speaking to us from the Midwest, where we are, correct? Yes, I'm in uh, just outside Chicago. Oh, great, great. And and we've got beautiful weather here. Fall is a beautiful time here. But it also is in Vermont. I mean, Vermont is, that's where everyone goes for the fall colors, right? <laughs> it's true. It's causing much traffic jams and, and, you know, ruining it for the rest of us. But I'm, uh, yeah. a Westerner. I'm, a, I'm from I'm from Chicago and I um, was in Iowa for a long time. And so I just, I'm home now. Really? I was, were you in Iowa City? I was in Iowa City, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, and there's a lot of references to Chicago in this book. In yes. Still, yeah. still, <laughs> still no word from you, which I don't know how this is a really I loved it, by the way. I just I it, it, I got into it right away and Thank you. just wanted to keep reading. And I feel like I know you so well because this is memoir it's literary criticism it's um it's what else it's observations on life um how else would you describe it <laughs> i think you got it you covered a lot of ground uh, you know i had a friend once who said you know write the book you want to read you know and uh i've always sort of taken that to heart i i think um you know, I, I think we are sometimes too a little bit too constrained by, you know, the category that it is. And uh, for me, um, literary criticism devoid of life um, isn't isn't right. I I think it, it, maybe it shouldn't even be called literary criticism. Maybe it should be called something else, literary engagement. Mm. But for me, you know, mm-hmm. to think about a book means thinking about life. And and where yeah. you were when you were reading that book, what you were thinking, yeah. what was going on in your life, how it impacted you, and um, just but boy, you have a good memory for books. 
much better than I, I do. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm not always accurate. And I think, uh, I think that's something that I kind of own a little bit. I've been criticized for it. I mean, but I, I, I kind of, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I kind of resent like double checking sometimes. I just want to <laughs> remember how I remember. It. You know what I mean? And I, I feel like that's what a book does. And now with, you know, the tools that we have, you know, this, this sort of obsession with um, double checking and even having the text available online. It's, but for me, you know, a book, if it lives, it's going to live imperfectly in your memory. Mm, I like that. I like that. So let's, let's talk about the title and where that came from, because that's such sure. an interesting background story. Still no, word, <laughs> still no word from you. It comes from uh, my grandfather, who was in the South Pacific. He was a, a ship captain in, the, in World War II. And uh, he was actually old. He wasn't drafted or anything. He was a, 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 a guy, an insurance company executive, who wanted to fight. He wanted to go to the war, so he signed up. And they put him in the Coast Guard. And the joke in my family has always been, I've written this in other books, but the joke has always been that he did such a good job um, uh, protecting the Calumet River from the Nazis that were non-existent. Uh, he, they sent him to the South Pacific. But they, in fact, what they needed, they needed, they needed experienced sailors, and my grandfather was that. And he, um, so he spent uh, two and a half years in the South Pacific as a captain of, a, of what they call an LST, which is... It's in Saving Private Ryan. It's like a little boat that carried tanks, and uh, my grandfather was the captain of that. And but after he died, and after my grandmother died, I found a uh, a, a plastic bag. Um, it was a Carson Perry Scott bag, the department store in Chicago, and full of in the bag were, were letters that my grandfather sent to my grandmother, literally dated consecutively every day that he was away oh in the war. Oh, my gosh. And uh, something I'd never seen. Nobody ever showed them to me. Um, and uh, and I have them on my desk, you know, in my drawer, and I, I often read them. I, I use them in a novel called Love and Shame and Love, sort of the spine of the novel, my grandfather's text. He was actually quite a good writer. He's had an interesting writer. He wrote with dashes instead of period. So, so like the version of Emily Dickinson. Anyway, but, um, but one of the lines that he said in the, in one of the letters was, it's been, uh, you know, two months and there's still no word from you. My grandmother was very busy. She was raising two kids during wartime. She was also a professional dancer. So she, she didn't have time. Oh my she goodness. Wasn't a letter and so she, he was sort of left hanging out there. And I, the book kind of, um, the, the kind of metaphor I was working with was the idea of my grandfather sort of waiting for word and his words kind of going out into the void. And, you know, I think, you know, it's double edged, right? I, I love one of the things I love about my job is I reach strangers that I'll never talk to, you know, and, <laughs> and, and that's weird. And that's how I kind of saw my grandfather is putting these words out there and actually reaching me, you know, decades later. Wow. And you never, did your grandparents stay together? After he came back from the war? After a 
fact, yeah, they stayed together. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mine stuff again and again and again, but one of the recurring metaphors of my fiction is my grandparents' separate single beds, kind of like um, Rob and Laura Petrie. Mm. Uh, they, um, you know, they, they, they stayed together, but I'm not sure it was the most intimate marriage. Mm. Yeah, it's like you think your husband's away at war. You, No matter how busy you were, you'd write at least once in a while, wouldn't you? I, I, my grandmother, I, I think part of it had to do with the beginning of the story. He volunteered. Mm. He wanted to go. Yeah. And I, I think there may have been a little bit of her saying, hey, you, you wanted to do this? Then, you know, live with it. Mm. But, you know, he wasn't cruel. <laughs> Um, she was just a, somebody who was busy and also, frankly, always had her own life. And, and that kind of, you know, uh, I've always mm-hmm. admired that. She's a right. professional dancer. A professional dancer as in, like, on, she, on in, in musicals and that type of thing? When she was younger, yeah, when she was younger, she was in shows. She was kind of like a showgirl, um, like hotels like the Edgewater Hotel. Um, and they would have like these music reviews and, you know, when she was very young in her twenties, she did that throughout her twenties. And then when she, after she got married and had my father, um, she taught dance for, um, the rest of her life actually mm. up until, um, her oh, mid eighties, okay. she taught dance up yeah. until and her mid eighties. Yes. Yeah. I would take, I used to, as a kid, I would take her exercise classes. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty old school, you know, pretty old school stuff, but it was fun. Wow. Wow. So when you um, tell us a little bit about like the structure of this book, which is a book of essays, it's 107 essays, I think, 107 essays, some of them very short, like less than a page, others multiple pages. And they're, they're kind of, um, they're laid out as relate, being related to the time, a time of day. So what's, what was your thinking? What were you trying to accomplish with that? Um, I think the genesis of the book, um, like a lot of my books, you know, kind of unplanned and, and accidental. Um, I was working on another book that I'm still working on. And, <laughs> you know, when I would get to work in the morning, I have this little studio in a hotel in Vermont and I, um, I, I'd often um, start the day by kind of taking a few notes on what I've been reading. And um, what I started to realize was is that, you know, that, that there was a narrative starting to form in the sense that I was sort of tracking how what I read kind of opened a portal to certain memories that but for having read what I had read, I would not have remembered. And then I started to realize that the memories, as they tend to be, right, are scattered all over between, you know, more recently and and way back. And so I started to think about um, the ways in which the the time that the memory was set in, and I started to kind of arrange them chronologically. And, you know, from childhood to, to current, right? And and then I used to, you know, well, I'm not the first person to think of this, of course, but the idea of a day being a lifetime. And one of the books that has meant a lot to me recently is a, a book of poetry called Midwinter Day, written by Bernadette Mayer, who wrote the entire book on one day in December, I believe, 1977, the entire day from start to finish. 
it covers her serving breakfast to her kids, her taking out the garbage. <laughs> she, she, her husband was a poet, and he. I, I make a joke in the essay, like, he, what was he doing all day? He was writing poetry, right? <laughs> she, and she tracks her daily physical stuff that she's doing. Kids are taking naps. She takes them to the library. But then she's also remembering. Absolutely extraordinary um, book, and I, I kind of – it's a homage to that idea. Mm. That how much is in a day? Literally, how much? How much do we think about in a day? Right, and in that book, she's she's really t- talking about all her thoughts. Um, right. I mean, during... while she's making spaghetti, you know, with yeah. one hand she's serving spaghetti, with the other hand she's writing down thoughts. Right. About about a memory from a birthday party or whatever. I mean, one of one of the scenes takes place in the state park and her mother's birthday, and you know, twenty five years earlier. Now, do you think she actually really wrote it all in that one day? That's the legend, and I, <laughs> I think when you read it, it has that feel. It, mm. it, it, it's not frantic. It's actually really patient. But the transitions are so crazy that I really think that had she allowed it to mediate over time, it would have morphed into something else. So I... I She's still alive. She's one of our great poets, unfortunately not very well known uh, by non-poets, I think. But um, but I, I believe her. Wow. And do you think she went back and did much rewriting, or she just let it stand the way she wrote it in that day? My thinking is the latter, you know, because yeah. she's a genius, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, so, you know, did she fiddle? If she fiddled, she doesn't let on. And I think that's the, you know that's the key, right? You have to you have to capture the spontaneity while working on it. So do I think she? Yes, I do. But <laughs> it doesn't feel like she did. I guess is my answer to that. Mm. But I have no way of knowing. She's written about it. So. Wow. And what was her name again? Uh, Bernadette Mayer. Bernadette Mayer, and the and the name of the book was. It's called Midwinter Day. Yeah. And it's it's a it's intense. I mean, it's I and what what I write in the essay is I, I, I the kind of impetus for the essay was I I was sort of accused of something that I had done, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I as penance I went to a library and penance at the person who I had done something bad to didn't care whether or not I did this or not. It was purely selfish selfish <laughs> penance. But I went to this I went and sat in a library. And read the entire book in one afternoon to experience the, the sense of it. And uh, so I kind of put myself in the role of of, of reading it in real time in, in that day. And, and that's why I feel like it's absolutely true. Mm. I, You know, that begs the question of why you thought that would be penance. <laughs> <laughs> that I can't answer. <laughs> <laughs> what exactly did you, you know, do I, that that would be penance right. for? <laughs> I, you know, that, that, I, that I leave off the page. I, I don't leave a lot off the page, but in this particular instance, I, I do. And, you know, I, 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 I kind of, I, I wanted to prove to myself that I, that I, that I couldn't, that I for once wouldn't be distracted. And so that was sort of what I was up to, but it had nothing to do with my crime. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Well, being distracted has to do with a lot of uh, interpersonal crimes, I would say. For sure. Yeah. 
You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Peter Orner, author of Still No Word From You. So you write both essays and novels and short stories. Yes. Do you sort of do them all sort of simultaneously, or um, you write a novel and then it's time for short stories, or... You know, what's your, what's your yeah, process you know, look like? I, I know people do that, uh, you know, kind of toggle back and forth between the new categories or genres. But um, for me, I think the one, constant is, the one constant is that I'm always writing stories. Mm. It, it, the stories are, 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 for me, always the thing that I kind of are always thinking about. And sometimes they grow into um, a longer story. And, and the test always with that is, is, you know, there's a reason why I'm not stopping. And the other, and then with essays, it's kind of like this other part of my life is that, it, again, it's sort of the thing I do when I'm not writing fiction, you know? So um, <laughs> I, I guess simultaneous, simultaneous is closer to the how it goes. What are you working on now? Is it a novel? Um, I'm working- a longer story, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm calling it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm I'm superstitious, like a lot of writers, so um, <laughs> hard to talk about. But um, but I'm doing the best I can. Great, great. Well, I was wondering about the uh, <clears throat> how he chose which authors to include in his in in this book, because there are so many many great authors out there. So how did he go about choosing the ones he wanted to use? Uh, it's a great question. I, I think um, in this case, because the book is so personal, I I really chose the the, the works that um, that I had run into, whether currently or in the past, that had impacted my memory. Mm. Um, that was that was sort of the the you know and 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 I was doing it sort of in current you know I. I I was I was thinking about that idea in real time, but then I was remembering instances where I had read something that had, you know, um, I hate the word trigger because it's not, you know, it's, it's so kind of overused these days. But mm. you know, a that sort of let's say reading a line that sort of my eye drifted off the page and it kind of bled into something else. You know, mm. I just here's an example. Um, there's a, a Tomas uh, Transformer uh, poem that I talk about in the book, a great Swedish poet. And he has a line where he's walking with his grandmother, something just so simple. You know, it's a parenthetical in the poem. And, you know, I thought about not dri- not walking with my grandmother, but driving with her. <laughs> because I drove all over town with her all the time on her errand. It's just so simple, right? But it it, it, it it led to that memory that you know, I may not have had had it not been for reading that one line. And most of what you're writing about is those very simple daily things, not necessarily big dramatic moments, or the, although there are a few, um, but really kind of the detail of the everyday. Yeah, I mean, that's... And, and, yeah, I mean that's, that's and a, and that's, making that interesting is a real art. 
Yeah, because but but the thing I think what I would say is like like what it really is ordinary. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do we have an ordinary day? Really? Like and this is kind of what Mayor's sort of argument is is there isn't any. Every day is this crazy amalgamation of things when, when you when you bring in thought. Right? Mm-hmm. Not that you may have an ordinary day because you go to work and do the same thing, but your brain is not doing what it did yesterday. And, and that's kind of what uh, I sort of been kind of fascinated me in this project. Wow. Well, Peter, why don't you read one of the essays for us? Sure. I, I, I thought it might be appropriate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of standing a few miles from where I grew up and I, I, I had a wonderful uh, high school English teacher and I, I sent her a letter to the grave. So mm. this is that. Uh, this is, uh, the book is divided into such a, uh, numbered sections. I, I have this thing against titles, at least I do at the moment. I think they <laughs> guide us. <laughs> they tell us what to think. You know, and so this is just chapter 29. Uh, 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 dear Mrs. Angerman, you did what you could with me. I was slow. Others weren't. Melanie Gurowitz, for instance. She said Hester Prynne represented the nascent rise of first wave feminism. I thought about Hester in ways you wouldn't want to know. Melanie Gurowitz would have slugged me. I live in New England now. I thought I would celebrate my annual descent into to depression, November to June, by reindulging after all these years in some Puritan-flavored sin. And I've got to say my reread was fairly consistent with how it was back when you gave me a charitable C+, based solely on my vigorous class participation because I turned in no work. In my post-high school experience, sin has always been worth it. Hawthorne still reigns on the parade. He doesn't, forgive me, Mrs. Angerman, give us much sense of Hester and Reverend Dimsdale's copulation. For Hawthorne, all is aftermath. Their moment of presumed sexual congress is so fleeting it hardly happened while it happened. Now this is, this I know pretty well. <laughs> Tiny spasms of undiluted rapture followed by what? Hawthorne's right. It's all aftermath. I've become solemn, Mrs. Angerman. You spent a lot of fifth period talking about symbols, but you weren't dopey about it. You encouraged us not to be either. The red letter you said wasn't so much a symbol of adultery as it was a representation of what everybody in the village believed was the demon inside them all. Hester was only the embodiment of the message. And we all know, you said, the role of the messenger. She brings the news nobody wants. Hester is us, you said. We are Hester. But who wants to hear it? Who listens? The case in point. To this day, nobody names their kid Hester. <laughs> and all the time, all this was over my head. It wasn't over Melanie Gerwitz's head, obviously. I'm trying to reconsider, or what's, what you said, I'm trying to receive. When Dinsdale, that overdramatic, hypocritical coward, Dinsdale, I say, is worse than Chillingworth any day, walks out into the night. He finds himself on the scaffold where years ago now, Hester had stood to receive her judgment. As he's standing up on the scaffold, who joins him? And there stood the minister with his hand over his heart 
and Hester Prynne with the embroidered letter glimmering on her bosom and Little Pearl herself a symbol and the connecting link between the two. Even an 1850 bosom must have sounded asinine, Mrs. Angerman. Look, I'm not trying to turn in my final essay 32 years late. You wouldn't <laughs> accept papers even after fifth period started. Not that this would have passed either. It's only that I noticed something in the minister's vigil chapter. Nothing earth-shattering. It's probably in the cliff notes. But I thought of you, Winifred. Can I call you Winifred? Hester and Pearl aren't there. Dimsdale's hallucinating. And yet, they are there, right? Because that's how it is with hallucinations. What is there isn't there. And what isn't there is there. Visions are things. And as the three of them stand on the scaffold, holding hands in the dark, this little family, this little non-family of three, Pearl asked, asked Dimsdale, wilt thou promise to take my hand and my mother's hand at noontide tomorrow? And Dimsdale, because even when he's hallucinating as a complete chicken, says, not then, child, but another time. And Pearl, savvy kid that she is, laughs right in his face. But this moment, great as it is, isn't really what got to me. It's what happens just after. It's when Hawthorne brings the weather, mm -hmm. a meteor shower, a sudden meteor shower. And the great vault brightens like the dome of an immense lamp. It showed the familiar scene of the street with distinctness with the distinctness of midday, but also with the awfulness that is always imparted to familiar objects by an unaccustomed light. People say you've died, Winifred. I refuse to believe it. Isn't it weird to say that I felt your physical presence while I was reading? This might distress you wherever you are. I'm a professor now. No PhD, let's not carry it away. I've got a bogus degree known, known as an MFA. A couple of years in Iowa, kind of like art camp in the Midwest with New Yorkers. The idea <laughs> of seeing the familiar in an unaccustomed light, it's not a tired metaphor about seeing something in a new light. The light itself is materially different. The night has for a moment or two become day. Arthur Dinsdale, like most of us, isn't anybody's idea of a swashbuckler. Yet, the meteor shower does, for a moment anyway, change everything. And Arthur sees. He finally sees. They stood in the noon of that strange and solemn splendor as if it were the light that is to reveal all secrets and the daybreak that shall unite all who belong to one another. I know that you will have flagged, even from the grave, Hawthorne's use of the word new. He turns time itself into light. You may have mentioned this in class, even. It's the sort of line that used to make Bob the forehead with an open palm. Hmm. So, thank you, Peter. Peter Orner, reading from Still No Word From You. Was this teacher part of your motivation to become a writer? 
I'd say so, yeah. Um, you know, she was somebody, you know, it's pretty rare, right, to get, you know, I mean, sometimes I think, I mean, I, and I think this a lot, and frankly, I see it way too often at the level I teach in now, where um, people approach literature with this sort of high-handed knowingness, you know, as if um, it's something can, can, that it can kind of be mastered if only you, you know, are smart enough and and whatever. <laughs> and and I, I just feel like the people who really know what this is about are the people who sort of realize that it's really mysterious and it's really emotional and that's the heart of it. And there's no, like, that it, it keeps being new. So this is somebody who taught Scarlet Letter not as if she'd ever taught it before. And how many times did, you know, Mrs. Angerman teach it? She taught it every time like it was new. And, and I think that's, um, that's mm. how to do it. Wow. Now, Caroline, you were a high school English teacher. Yes, I was. Did you ever teach the Scarlet Letter? No. No, I didn't. Wasn't part of the curriculum here in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had to. I had to go by. You know, the curriculum was set up for me, and uh, I had to go by that. But um, I was interested in in that teacher's last name. That is an interesting name. Um, where that came from? I'm 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 always interested in names because there's so many different names in the world. You wonder how how did they get there? How did they start? You know, just uh, yeah, really, Angerman. That's an interesting name. Uh, I think um, I, I, it's Jewish German, I think. Mm. So. Mm. so, so I remember, you know, being a student in school, and and when we were studying some great book, that there were always these, you know, what did the author mean by this? You know, some line, mm -hmm. and um, and sometimes I'm like. I'm not sure there's one right answer to that. Although often that was, well, you know, you were expected to give the right answer. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's, you know, driving around life and, 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 you know, it's not, it's just the idea and, and so many people put it in people's heads and it's what puts people off it. Yeah. Right. And then there's, you know, like, you'll analyze something and it's like that they did this and they did this and it means this. And, and I'm like, I bet the author had no idea that's what they were doing when they were writing because right. they, they make it, they always made it sound like it was so, so preplanned and, and thought through. But I've talked to an awful lot of writers <laughs> since we've been doing this show and I think a lot of it just a lot of the really great writing just happens serendipitously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think, I mean, my whole way of doing this is to allow that rather than uh, try and um, game stuff out, you know, it's got to happen mm, in the moment. Right, right. So how much, like, when you're writing, when you sit down to write an essay like this, are most of these essays written like in one sitting? Um, I, I no. I mean, I, 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 I'm a, I'm 
I'm pretty obsessive. <laughs> um, and I, I, I write by hand and I, uh, I have like multiple notebooks. And so I'll write a piece and then I'll rewrite it in another notebook and I'll rewrite it in another notebook and I'll lose that notebook and I'll have to go back to one of the other versions. And it sort of, um, kind of develops from the rewriting, um, more than anything. Okay. We don't talk to too many people anymore that write by hand. I was just going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's why I think that's uh, yeah. good. I really do. I, I like that. I really. I do. mean, I wish. I wish a lot of. Sometimes I wish I didn't. I. I cannot physically do it any other way. So at some point, it gets into a computer. Yeah, at, at some point, and that's always kind of a sad moment for me. <laughs> 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 uh, um, I don't. You know, I don't. You know. It's like it, it kind of leaves me then, you know. And then it kind of has to live or die, you know. When, when I, like, I think, I think there's a quote from, uh, I think it's W. H. Auden, where it says, you know, you can fall in love with your own handwriting, you know. And so the computer mm-hmm. helps because it it anonymizes it, and it better be okay then, you know, because when it's in my own hand, I'm like, oh, that that's so, you know. It's, it's I think I I try and balance it. Well, you know, it's kind of like I have recipes written in my grandmother's hand, and they are precious to me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I, have that. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. And you also have letters from my father mm-hmm. that you've kept. And did he keep the letters you wrote to him? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't well, know. if he did, they're... You would have them. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, Monica, I have so much. We just found found Monica's father's report cards from kindergarten through 12th grade. Wow. And I didn't even know I had those. And my father died in 1981. So that's been a long time ago. And here's the funny thing about it. I always thought he was a straight-A student from... From birth, there was, you know, it was like the the standard, the expectation for his children was set so high, and he was not. <laughs> well, he did get a lot of A's. He did get a lot of A's, and his final year, two years of high school, he was almost straight A. But up until then, he got a lot of B's and C's, and, and not a lot of C's, but a lot of B's, some C's, and... um Oh man! If I'd ever come home with a C, I would have, I would have been in big trouble. (laughs) And and even in conduct, he didn't he didn't always get A's in conduct. Yeah, I know, I know. It it was interesting. It was interesting. That's it's kind of like I'm surprised he surprised he kept those really. (laughs) It's kind of like my granddaughter who's ten, and she recently asked me. if her dad, my son, was um, a really good kid, because he, or was he a perfect child? Because he had told her he was a perfect child. <laughs> oh, he did. <laughs> he did. And I said, well, he got suspended from school once, <laughs> and maybe I wasn't supposed to let that let, let that probably not that let that probably, be known. Be <laughs> 
but I, but I did tell her, which is true. He was very helpful around the house. He was very good at helping me with housework and stuff. <laughs> And he, and he has a lot of other good, t- other, you know, other yes. good aspects too. Yeah, a lot of things. Yeah. That he, yeah. But he got into some trouble. He got in trouble multiple times. But usually for things that I didn't, that to me, I was actually a little proud of him for. It, it, Monica's like your brother, <clears throat> David. He always stuck up for the underdog, always. And uh, he got him in trouble different times because he, you know. Mm-hmm. wasn't going to let somebody get bullied, bullied and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Peter, do you have um, kind of a favorite essay in this book? Uh, yeah, I think to my mother. Um, there's a, you know, the book is dedicated to my mom, and it very much um, kind of centers on, on her uh, as kind of an anchor. You know, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, the, the pieces uh, about her, um, she lost her husband 40 years, um, a couple of years ago. And, you know, that was, um, you know, grief is universal and, 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 and singular, you know, and, uh, um, my stepdad was 94. And so it wasn't entirely shocking thing to have happen my mother was you know um blindsided by it and mm. uh it's been it's been uh, difficult so what did she do she um ran for public office what <laughs> oh for <laughs> heaven's sake so i'm actually uh in chicago i'm on a, a book tour at the moment but i'm also um in chicago also campaigning for my mom uh who's running for um uh, office to, uh, to service. Um, what it, what office is she running for? She's running for uh, outside Chicago. There's, a, there's these water districts that, that deal with the um, water treatment uh, for systems for millions of people. And my mother is running for North Shore Water Reclamation District Board, which is a, um, it's an independent body that crosses over you know town lines to govern this enormous system for I think about half a million people. And so my mom is, uh, is a candidate. She's actually uh, running for reelection um, because she won uh, uh, four years ago. So uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. So how old was oh she God. when she decided to run for public office? Uh, she was 82. And she <laughs> ran, uh, oh my goodness. Well, good for her. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And the thing is, my, my stepdad was a, a politician his whole life. And, you know, we always thought my mom was the real, I mean, he had a lot of talent, but it was really my mom that was the, you know, she had another job. She always worked. She was the head of the Eleanor Arts Council for many, many years. Um, so she had a day job of her own, but she just had a gift for um, for politics and for government and governing. And so, but it wasn't until my stepdad died that that kind of opened up for her. And uh, mm. yeah, so she's eighty-five running for reelection. I really liked what you wrote about your stepdad. Um, you know, there's a scene where at his burial, and you wrote, "I've had a few father figures, only one father, but also a stepfather who not only put up with me, he accepted me as his own, enfolded me into his life. I was welcome to the party. Grab a drink and join us." 
I, I was oh, that was lovely. Yeah. 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 He, would, he would greet you at the door with a, with a glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was... Um, there's other, you know, other times that you, you know, other relationships that you write about that seem a little strained or troubled or um, that made me feel like you were maybe a little lonely. But talking to you, I don't get that feeling. <laughs> I got a six-year-old and a five-year-old. How can I be lonely? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But I do think that, you know, I, I, I think that's a something. I mean, I don't think loneliness is a negative thing. You know what I mean? I mean, I think we can be surrounded by a lot of love and still, you know, be bereft for people gone and, 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 and everything else. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. You know, um, so this book was, a lot of it was written during, you know, during the lockdown and that kind of heightened that, that sense. Of course. So Peter, did you always know from a young age that you wanted to be a writer? Uh, I think it's the only thing that I'm suited for on the planet. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm lucky to be able to do it. If I didn't do it, I would still do it. You know, if I didn't publish, I would still, this would still be what I do. You know what I mean? And, or teach or whatever. I mean, everything kind of grows out of it. I, I wouldn't have a teaching job, but for the work, I make that joke that, you know, I don't have a PhD or anything, but I, I work with people who do. I mean, they, they must think I'm some kind of freak, but um, you know, it's all kind of radiant from that. And I, you know, from sixth grade on, it was sort of a thing that I did. Um, and you know, I went to law school and I've tried a lot of things, but this has always been the one constant. I, um, I'm a volunteer firefighter, which I love, but I'm, I'm not especially a talented firefighter. But I'm <laughs> help. You went, you went to law school. Did you graduate from law school? I did. Yeah. I, and did uh, you ever I, work as an attorney? I, uh, I, I, I I did one case. I've written about it. Asylum case in San Francisco, and I um, a guy from Guatemala who definitely deserved asylum, and uh, he needed a better lawyer than me. The, the silver lining of the story is that he got he got a asylum on appeal. Um, oh. it was a tough story, but I. And and I laid the groundwork for the appeal, but I did lose the case. And I, I I can remember the immigration judge, kind of like she just immigration uh, cases go really quickly, you know, kind of in real time. So you, you make your point, you you show your evidence, and then the judge just makes a decision. <laughs> and she just I just got denied, and I, I sat there, I was dumbfounded. So, so I'm still getting over it. Oh wow! And I mean, did you literally quit practicing law because you lost that case? No, this was a, a volunteer. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so I have a law degree, and I, I did pass the bar in Massachusetts, but I, um, I've, I've never practiced regularly. Okay, all right. So what I, you know, I know a number of people, including my own sister, who have law degrees and passed the bar, and and either practiced for a very short time or not at all, and. I, I'm always curious about that. You've spent so much time and energy to get that degree. Why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a, count, a counter. I mean, the cost is a whole other story. <laughs> so let's leave that out. Of right, it. right. But, but here's what I would say. Is that it, 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 it's been incredibly 
important to me. Um, on the one hand, practically, because I teach law, uh, and that's been a lot of fun. I actually love to teach. I teach a class called Law, Literature, and Justice at Dartmouth, and it's terrific. We, our, the kids are, I mean, really engaged, and I teach cases, and it kind of allows me to use that training that I got. But the other thing about law, as it relates to, to this, is that law is, if anything, it's about stories, right? Especially mm-hmm. the way that American law is organized, because we're a case law system. So, you know, like the French have a code. You can look it up in theory. But our laws are, are, are made by stories. It's the strangest thing. Common <laughs> law is so weird. You know, like a, a, a law, a, 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 you know, a, a precedent, a legal precedent is because of someone's story that you, you then pull out that, you know, legal line. Right, right. And you find, is, right. Yeah. And you find so the so things that are in common with the current story. Exactly. And that's what you do. You, you're constantly trying to compare or if you're contrasting, right? But here's why the story's not like that. And right. it's, it's the best training for a storyteller there is. If you take out the, the, the problem to me and the way in terms of the way law is taught is that it's all about the distillation of the of what comes out of the the you know, the case. So you it's you know, they call it a holding. So you gotta learn the holdings of the text. But for mm. me it's like a story, you know, and so that was my frustration. Because I wanted to talk about the nuances of the story and, you know, the, the bottom line was what's the whole thing? What, what comes out of it? You know? Right. So in this class that you teach, I'm assuming this is something, a course that you designed? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So is it for writers or for law students or both? It's, uh, it's, for, it's for undergraduates. Um, who are interested in in both in in going maybe going to law school studying government and or people who are interested i get a lot of my own like english and creative writing students who are gravitate towards it so it's a it's i I really like it because it's not my usual people it's some of them who are Mm. like oh i want in that also you know a lot of talented writers will take the class but i i'm interested in pulling in those ones that kind of like I, the most interesting thing for me about it is that their notion of law is so crazy. They think they think it's like a code system. You plug it in, you learn it, and you plug it in. And they're like, they can't believe the stuff that goes on in the cases that I teach them. They can't they can't believe it. You know, and of course we talk about you know um, uh, criminal justice and and you know stuff like that where where it's off the charts in terms of you know I start the class out by asking what. You know, how do you define justice? And then we look in how it's defined in real time on the ground. So you you take a case, and how how are you like how are you bringing literature into the case? I I, I teach uh, you know I'll teach Native Son, which has a, a, a you know almost a third of the book is uh, a court case, you know, bigger ah, bigger. Ah, okay, okay. So we look at we we'll look at the way in which. Fiction writers, nonfiction writers, poets employ law in their literature. And then as well as um, I have this old book of my father's. It's, it's, it's a huge anthology, hardback anthology, and it's two volumes. And the first volume is law in literature, and the second volume is law as literature. So Louis Brandeis, Learned Hand, all these great 
Justice Brennan, all these great justice writers. So it's kind of interesting, like law can be literature. So that, I actually structure my class on that idea. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, what do you think of John Grisham? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I was at a conference with him. Um, <laughs> very generous, generous, nice guy. Uh, you know, and actually does a lot for writers. You know, I'm not, I, I can't say I'm, I'm a, a huge knowledgeable fan of his work, but, um, but uh, I know what he does for us and I appreciate mm. it. And uh, I, and, and long, you know, he's, you know, he's, I think anyone who makes a living telling stories is doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always found that I felt like some of his stories were not, the plots weren't very realistic to me. Yeah. <laughs> they were a little, a little too contrived. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not, you know, yeah. subtle, subtle. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the guy's got, the guy's got knowledge. He's been a practicing lawyer. So I, I tip my hat. Even right. Hat. Right. And there's quite a few others. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams has written some, yeah. some yeah. books. I really, en- I enjoyed hers. Um, and I'm trying to think who are some of the other attorney, you know, criminal. And it's usually criminal attorneys, although not always, because civil law can be pretty fascinating, too. Yeah. I mean, one of the ones that come to mind for me are um, Wall Stevens, who was a lawyer. He, was, uh, you know, he works for an insurance company, but he was an attorney. Oh, um, wow. Maybe our best. Uh, ever. And, and Kafka was a lawyer. So, oh, you know, wow. Biggest heroes, uh, you know, had a lot of years. Wow. So, how did you? So, you're you're a teacher and a, a professor and a full time writer. How did you make that kind of that leap to being able to make a living as a writer, in a sense? You know, trial and error, and and you know, kind of just hanging in there. You know, um, I think, I mean, you know, the way to you know, it's, it's, it's about hanging in there and it's about, it's about getting a break. You know, I got a break, um, about 22 years ago, uh, 1999, 2000, when I published my first book and it was because my best friend, who's a lawyer, <laughs> decided he, to try his hand as a literary agent. What are you doing? You know, what are you And, uh, he got somebody at Houghton Mifflin to, to take a second look at me and, uh, um, it just, you know, I mean, that easily could not have happened. So I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the accident that lead to lead to this kind of stuff. Could you uh, could, could could you tell us about this book? Am I alone here? That was previously that you previously wrote over with a collection of essays. What were those? What was that? What precipitated that? Sure, and, you know, I, I think the, the two books of essays are a little bit. Um, um, like on the surface, similar, but am I alone here? Really, was my attempt at sort of, you know, kind of forming a thought about an essay beforehand. You know, I had, you know, I wanted to write about Chekhov, a particular Chekhov story, and I kind of, you know, these were written. They were all pub- a lot of them were published separately. So I think the book works out and it works together. But it's a, um, the impetus for that one was. Uh, more practical. I was I was sort of setting out to write about certain things, and and this mm-hmm. one happened more organically 
uh, and I was using memory a lot more. Uh, I would describe am I alone here, even though it actually gets very personal, uh, is more on the literary criticism side, although it's my brand of that, which is personal. Oh, I see. Well, it, the, the title intrigued me, and I thought it could go in a lot of different directions there, so that's why I was wondering. It's like a phrase that I would say, you know, am I, you know, am I alone here? Am I, am I, is, is anybody with me? You know, so <laughs> that emerged. Um, some of the other essays I found really interesting, there was um, this one about Andre Debus, mm-hmm. yeah. who I was not familiar with, but um, tell, tell us a little bit about who that is and how he impacted you. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I, I dedicated my first book to him. came out in 2000. Esther Stories is dedicated to his memory. He died in 99, and he was my a teacher um, in so many ways and mentor and friend. And as I, I was actually in law school and um, Andre had a, a, a workshop in his house where he would invite writers to come and sit around his living room and exchange stories. And the reason that he had that um, is this this thing that he did is because he was in a horrible car accident north of Boston and he barely lived. He lost both of his legs. This guy was an ex-Marine, ran every day. Mm. Loss of physicalness was an incredible loss. And um, just to make a long story much shorter, he, at the time of his accident, did not have health insurance. And so a bunch of writers at the time got together and you can imagine the bills when you lose two legs, right? Um, as crazy, and but a bunch of writers, including John Updike and others of the time, raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to to help him. And this is the kind of person he was. Um, first of all, I should say he, he to me he's one of the great American short story writers. He published generally with smaller presses, and so was never quite as well known as he should be um, to this day. But to me, he's essential. Um, essential writer, originally from Louisiana, but writes a lot about um, uh, rough and tumble New England. But anyway, as a way of giving back to the writers that had helped him, he did it kind of cosmically. And his way of doing that was opening his life up and his house up to unpublished people like me. Mm. And uh, I'd go every mm-hmm. Thursday every Thursday night for four years, I went to his house. And oh, I my gosh. Back. I do have like a more formal training or whatever, if you call an MFA, but that was my, that was it. That was it. I was incredibly lucky. Wow. And what city was, were you living in then? I was living in Boston and Mm -hmm. Andre was North Boston in a town called Haverhill near Newport. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one last um, kind of writer I want to talk to you about because we're getting close to running out of time, but we we have interviewed a lot of authors who've written about the Holocaust and uh, World War II, and you write about um, Primo Levi. I just really um, was struck by where he um, where he decides not to pray when he is, um, you know. Well, t- well, tell it. Can you just tell us the story a little yeah. bit? I, I, I thank you so much for 
asking, you know, I've, I've been talking about this book a lot and no one has asked me about this. And oh. uh, for me, it's like, the, it's, it's, it's the book. <laughs> it's what mm. I was trying to get. At. Um, so I really appreciate it. Um, Primo Levi is Italian. Um, he was a young guy. He was a chemist when the war broke out and, um, ends up, you know, he's Jewish and he gets, uh, arrested and deported to Auschwitz like so many others. Um, in the Italian Jewish community. Uh, and he finds, finds himself in these completely foreign places in Poland and he's in a line and the line is uh, uh, to determine who is fit to work and who's going to go to the, you know, to the gas chambers. I mean, it was that, it was that basic. And, um, and he knew this. He knew it. He knew it was happening, even though there was a lot of confusion, right? And Levy, he... Uh, He's faced with this, this choice. Um, he was not a believer. He was Jewish, but he wasn't somebody who um, was religious at all. He just, you know, he was a Jew, like me. I'm not particularly religious, but I'm, you know, I mean, I am who I am. And, and in this case, I would have been, as Primo Levi, he was who someone else told him he was, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's in line, he's in line and he... You know, he writes about this 40 years later. So, you know, you kind of have to take time into account. But he says, he says he debated with himself whether or not he was going to pray. And he determined, he decided, he says, that to pray as if somebody who didn't believe would have been disingenuous to God if God did exist. <laughs> you know? And, and, and that's how went down and I have thought about that moment for years and I was thinking that it was connected to the fact that he got through that line without getting sent to death. Mm-hmm. And I, that decision as hard as it would have been because we, you know, you know, like, the, you know, this concept of like foxhole Jesus, right? <laughs> you know, right. Jesus, yeah. And then, forget about him right he didn't do that and i think that that gave him a certain amount of strength he was not a big man he was not somebody who i think anyone would have on the surface thought that he would be particularly helpful as a worker but he survived the war because of his chemistry background and he wrote you know to my mind one of the one of the great memoirs of the holocaust called um surviving in auschwitz well peter thank you so much for joining us today and we're we're going to have to wrap up. Caroline always get, closes with a quote for us. Do you have something today, Mom? Yes, I, I had three from the book, but I decided on this one. Maybe we read because we seek that word from someone, anyone. Hmm. Thank you. And thank you, Peter. Well, thank you both. This has been a real special uh, treasure. Thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.